forever. Dog. You know, when you're in that situation, you, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Like, I did not realize how um, disabled I would be. And now my left, like, my left arm is still totally paralyzed. And my, my voice still isn't where it used to be. And I've got a blind spot on the left side. I mean, acting is entirely different now. But there was a moment, literally there was a moment in the ICU where I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I beat Hollywood. I became a success. I moved to LA as a kid, became a successful, built a career, became a successful actor. If I can be, if I can beat Hollywood, then I can beat a stroke. So let's go. Hello and welcome to Household Faces, a podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from The Big Bang Theory or Speechless or one episode of the USA comedy Psych, which leads us seamlessly to our guest today. Our guest is Timothy Amundsen. Now, I met Timothy when I did an episode of Psych uh, early in its first season. I don't even think it was airing yet. But I was up in Vancouver, didn't know anybody, uh, and he was part of the very warm and friendly set that welcomed me with open arms. I was already a fan of Timothy's, having seen him on Deadwood in his brief but incredibly pivotal role, as in like pretty much sets the entire show and the movie up for the, its whole narrative arc uh, early in season one. Uh, we're going to talk about Deadwood on this episode. Uh, I never pass up a chance to talk about Deadwood. In my defense, it's because Deadwood is awesome. We're also going to talk a little bit about Gallivant. We are going to talk about This Is Us. We are going to talk about the stroke that almost punched his card to hear him tell it about five years ago and how he is bouncing back from that hurdle. It is a really neat an occasionally moving conversation with my friend. Thank you for listening in. Please welcome Timothy Amundsen. Timothy Amundsen, thank you so much for doing this. John Ross Bowie, thank you for inviting me to be a part. I've um, long since been wanted wanted to chat with you and be a member of your uh, your awesome club. Well, what, what's nice about this is that I, I actually, I, I I think I know a lot of the answers to these questions already, but I'm going to pimp you into them anyway, and then we're probably going to discover some new stuff along the way. So I, I think this is going to be a net win for me and the listener. Um, I want to start... We're really nice about that, John. It's, I've been, I haven't been pitted anything since college, so... Um... <laughs> Yikes. This will be good. Um, this will be exciting. And we're, we're going to talk about, we'll talk about college. Don't you worry. Um, but let's start. Um, it's hard to, to pick a, a biggest credit, but let's talk with about your your longest running credit, which would be Lassiter on, on Psych, which is where you and I met. Um, how did that role come to you? Uh, was that, that was a, a good old fashioned, um, my manager and agent Simony for the role and went in an audition the old fashioned way. Did you chemistry read with, with, uh, with Roday? Um, I mean, he was in my test, which I guess you'd call it a chemistry read. Although, um, let me go back here. Um, prior to getting psyched, I had not tested for a show in like eight years. I was pretty convinced that I was never going to get a job with the traditional testing route route. 
really? blue, brown, and purple place. Yeah, I just I could never get past that. I would go up occasionally. I mean, pilot seasons were never great for me. I was always kind of like getting what my long-term job was by. I was going to show up to do one guest spot, and then it would get turned into like three or four, or in some cases, several seasons. So I was pretty convinced I was always going to be the guy who goes in the back door. Is that how, you? You had a recurring on chasing Amy, right? Not chasing Amy, uh, uh, judging Amy. Judging Amy. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, that, that's when the start out was nine episodes, or no, it was supposed to be three episodes, and ended up being ninety. Wow, that's or fantastic. Or take. Um, at 90 is fine. The, um, I've never done 90 episodes of any, I haven't done 90 episodes of this podcast. Um, yeah. the, uh, so the testing process, and I, I think my audience has been at this for a while now, but there's, there's a few different tiers, uh, that you go through. Think of it as the, uh, the NCAA finals, but for very insecure people, you, <laughs> you go to a pre-read with a casting director you go to a producer session where the people actually created the show take a look at you. Sometimes you get to skip the pre-read. And then you, uh, the way they used to do it is you actually went in person in front of the studio that was producing the show and the network that was producing the show. Those were often two separate appointments. They're doing a lot of this more on tape now. But it's a very long, rigorous process that I, I personally believe is designed to break some people so that... They understand who who can cope under pressure. <laughs> I do not disagree. Um, how many levels of hell did Dante have? Uh, they were closer to eight or nine, I think. But it's you know it's clearly and um, if I don't know if you've ever tested for uh, network for CBS, but they used to take you down to this weird basement at that building on Fairfax yeah. in Beverly. Yeah, that was like, oh, I'm actually being taken to hell right now. This is I am being lowered several malabolgia here. At the quote unquote television air quotes television center. Yes, the television center where they uh, where a lot of CBS's corporate decisions are are made. You would actually go deep underground. So you had a lousy streak with testing. Um, and then this opportunity for psych comes along. Were you, you'll pardon, psyched, or did you just kind of figure this was a lost cause? I know that one I was really excited about. Like the the first audition for um our produ the producers went so well, like it was such a positive experience that I literally walking out the door was like, I'm going to leave before I screw this up because they were being so, so complimentary. And I just sort of like felt like right in that audition, I really had the guy was in the pocket. Oh, that's wonderful. So how do you approach, well, how do you approach a character? Let's, let's start from the, from the ground with this guy. Cause Lasseter is a very specific kind of character. He's almost the, He's almost the Margaret Dumont to Rodé's Groucho Marx. Very much so. Right? Fact, you know, there's, um, a, there's that um, real sense of, like, stiff, aristocratic, no-nonsense. But you obviously have to have a goofy side or else it doesn't work or else it just looks mean. <laughs> yeah, so he was, I mean, I went into the audition only having the sides. And it's like, oh, he's a cop. So I put in my dark blue cop suit. And I get in the room and Steve Frank's the amazing and lovely creator goes just so you know before i even started just goes just so you know it's not it's not nypd blue it's moonlighting and i thought right. oh, okay i know how to do that okay okay so that immediately gave me permission to kind of be funny and just lighten up the uh loosen i just got to unloosen loosen my unhinge my screws a little bit of the tough guy cop that i was getting ready to do well it's it is really actually now that i think of it there is a huge 
debt to moonlighting in the show's self-awareness, in the show's fourth wall poking, the uh, the sort of cinematic tributes that were layered throughout. Um, there's a there's a bunch of uh, yeah, I never thought about that, but yeah, there, it's absolutely a a a Dave and Maddie homage for a big chunk of that show's run. Yeah, and Steve was very very. As we started the show, Steve was really um, not hiding that aspect at all. So we all kind of leaned into that. And then once I got to the actual testing in the room, I did a read with James, and who um, ended up giving me a gift, which I didn't realize was a gift at the time. So James Rodero Rodriguez, who's an incredibly talented actor and improviser, starts going off book in my, in my test and infuriates me. So I, I, I do one read, go out to the room, just breathing fire. And Steve comes out and they give me, they take me to the hallway and give me a note. So they say, uh, we're not sure that um, you can quite be strong enough to kind of handle this character. Like Blaster could be strong enough to play out. I could be strong enough to play out James. So can you maybe be a little harsher? And I was like, oh, watch this. So I go in ready to just like <laughs> wanting to punch him in the face. Yeah. But I was so literally, I was so angry that it just he, I just rolled with that aspect of, of Lasseter. And then, twenty minutes later, I'm driving down um, Hillhurst, and I get a call from Steve Frank saying, "Hey, you're the guy." That's magnificent. Oh, that's a great feeling to get it in the car, to get it on the ride home. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was, um, that's happened to me like once when you read at CBS. Yeah, um, you that's the, so. The nice thing about Sorry, I was going to say, the nice thing about auditioning for stuff at um, that CBS television center is you can, after your horrible auditioning, you go to the farmer's center, the farmer's market right next door and get drunk. Uh, yes. Yes, you absolutely can. And just maybe leave your car overnight and uh, and Uber home. Yeah, there's a, there's a few opportunities there for, for that sort of behavior. Um, so you, you do the show, you move up to Vancouver for a few years. Did you do the entire run in Vancouver? Uh, we did, yeah, we did the whole thing, and then my kids were toddler, my girls were toddlers at the time, so it was literally like loaded up the car. I drove up, I think I drove to Vancouver. I think I kind of once. It was like ten times because once I had to take two cars. Like first was the SUV loaded up with all the stuff for the kids. Like I hit the border looking like the Clampets. I had <laughs> bikes strapped to the top. I had like a, a bike stroller strapped to the top of my of my SUV and. Get to the border and they're they are pretty sure I'm moving in and, and a little freaked out and eventually they let me into the country and I found a a really beautiful place to rent for my wife and daughters. So my kids were really raised in Vancouver. They, it's a very special place to them. And since we're doing the movies, they've had they've gotten to come back and at least once a year and stay with me and do the movies. And this for the last movie we got to. So we we played the girls' big greatest hits of the place, the, like the beaches they grew up. Oh, nice! Oh, that's really sweet to hear. Yeah, it's a great um, it's a great city. When you guest in Vancouver, everyone stays at the same hotel, the famous Sutton Place. Um, the Sutton Place, which is is famous um, because 
it doesn't matter what production you're with, they're probably going to put you there. So it isn't just people from whatever show you're guesting on. It's whatever else is shooting in Vancouver. So uh, the gym is, you know, Mary Steenbergen on the elliptical. And here comes Kristen Chenoweth. And, and, and yeah, I'm going to go have a drink with Matthew Broderick. It's this fascinating, like, mega lost in translation uh, place. Uh, I don't know what the neighborhood is. What neighborhood is that? Where the Sutton Place is? It's uh, near the Gaslight um... District. It's near the Gaslamp District. It's sort of uh, it's sort of it's sort of downtown. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gas Lamp's more south. Okay. It's right near the, right I remember near I the walked Arkansas, to the Gas Lamp District um, to buy weed at the time. I remember that. Yeah, hopefully didn't make that walk at night. That could get a little dodgy. It's on the way to no, the it was, it was but, broad um, daylight. I was told to go to some bar and hang out by the jukebox, and somebody would approach me, and lo and behold, <laughs> they did. I know that bar. I want to be. <laughs> When a buddy, a buddy of mine from Seattle came up to visit me, and he was looking for the same thing, and um, he was told to, so he had to go hang up on the guy at the jukebox. That's hilarious. But, God, yeah, I had, I had, I had the guy next to the jukebox. I had three scenes. I only spoke in one of them. We shot my first, my shot my initial stuff, you know, pretty quickly. So I was done talking for the week, and I was like, ah, I don't have to be off book. <laughs> um, I don't encourage that, guys. I don't encourage uh, getting high while you're on location. But um, if you're in Vancouver, I get, apparently you just wander by. Although I imagine everything's perfectly legal now. There was a time when you had to like either be in Vancouver or you had to ask your sound guy if you wanted weed on location. And uh, these kids today don't know how easy they have it. No, in fact, I had a, uh, when I was up for the, our last movie, our um, boom operators who became dear, very dear friends of mine, I was quarantining with my family in the Sun Place Hotel and they sent me a Vancouver care package with um, Molson, Canadian Club, some poutine, and literally some weed that they bought in, in a grocery store. Oh my God, that's incredible! So to this day, when we're when we're driving around, because uh, pot is not legal in L.A., whenever we get a whiff of a skunk, uh, oh look, say, no kids, it's just a skunk. My daughters would literally go, "Oh, Vancouver." <laughs> that's <laughs> magical. So down at Kids Point Beach, you could walk down the beach, and you, all you're getting is just the secondhand smoke of. So oh, I'm sure. What, that's my daughter's sense memory events were amazing. Smelling the gums. Well, I mean, I grew up in I grew up in the in Hell's Kitchen in in New York City in the '70s, so it, it it's a a weirdly associative uh, olfactory memory for uh, me as well. But let's talk about the Northwest uh, for a moment. Um, you grew up in Seattle, right? For a kid who, who was a horrible athlete and not a great student, but wanted to be an actor, it was a great place to grow up because Seattle's got a, dozens of great equity houses. Dozens, really? I would say dozens. I would think. Wow. At least in the time I was there, it was. Did you do some professional acting when you were a kid? I um no, I I interned at theaters in high school. I started interning around, so I could just like hang out and and, and after my first when I hit seventh grade, I took my first drama class. And my world just kind of exploded and opened up. So by kind of twelve years old, I I sort of gotten through everything I felt I could get out of junior high drama school and started taking classes at the really amazing Seattle Children's Theater. Really? So yeah, what did you? What is it? What does a twelve-year-old do at Seattle Children's Theater? What kind of stuff do you work on? Uh, it was pretty. What we, we at that time we we were with they brought in a director and a playwright. So we we so they wrote a play around us, and we ended up performing that play. Interesting. I've just this was in '84, and I've just recently found a Facebook group dedicated to this this young adult training program class of '84, and reconnected with all these other. Kids who were at the time now, of course, are middle-aged people, but well, little kids at the time trying to figure out what the hell we're doing. 
Oh, my, wow. Actually, my first class there was was really was a technical feeder. I was learning lighting and how to run a how to run a, a lighting board. Oh wow, that's so that's so helpful, and it probably makes you a little extra empathetic when for the crew on whatever set you're on. I imagine. Yeah, so now I'm the kid. Like, and then because I had that knowledge, I in junior high I was the kid on the ladder hanging the Lycos. They're letting a 12 year old child up on a um, what 30 foot ladder with a um, really heavy lighting instrument hanging dangling, dangling from his hand. I feel like you were probably already really tall, though. Were you already really tall? I feel like you were probably already really tall. I was a, I was a big old beanpole of a kid. Okay, so I mean, you but passed. Certainly... I'm sure it you know it wasn't like you know setting some you know seven year old you know four foot eleven kid up there. Um, That's true. Uh, but so what so. You you immediately fall in love with uh, with theater uh, when you were twelve. Did you think about doing anything else, or were you just single minded in your pursuit? Oh no, that was it. Was it? And I remember saying the day the day I said to my dad when the, when the bedroom was like, "Okay, I made a decision. I'm gonna, about six, and I was like, I'm going to be an actor because if you have a talent, you don't use it, then you don't say you have the talent." And he just went stared at me for a second, and went, "Okay." Hmm. And they luckily I had very very supportive parents who paid for me to like to take these classes in Seattle and hop on a bus and let me, when I, like I said, I was so I interned at the empty space theater in Seattle when I was in high school, okay. just so I could hang out in a professional theater and be around, just be around professional theater actors. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you probably learned, you can probably learn more there than you could in a conventional class setting. I imagine. I absolutely did. And like, there's one of the best actors I know is a local Seattle, Seattle actor, a guy named David Pichette. Okay. And uh, I got to watch him do three different roles over the course of my years there. And it was incredible watching go from rehearsal to um, performance night was um, pretty, pretty amazing. In fact, the day before I went down to, before I flew to LA for my theater school auditions, I told him I had these auditions coming up and he took me up on the main stage and literally played uh, York to my Hamlet, Jimmy Tyrone to my, James Tyrone to my Jamie, like did my, did my monologue, let me perform my monologues to him playing off the so I actually had these had a human being's face in my head when I would was something down down at college and auditioning. Oh my god. Like this incredible gift this man gave me. So hang on, you did you did um Alas Poor York, I knew him Horatio, and which which monologue from Londe's Journey, do you remember? Uh it was the um God yes, it was the um him uh I think it was Jamie talking about uh sailing. Okay. I can't remember the exact lines to it though. Um, that's that's incredible. What roles had you seen David play? Uh, I saw him do Don Juan and um, Irma Vep. <gasps> oh wait, Irma Vep, the Charles Ludlam adaptation. Yeah, the mystery of Irma Vep. Yeah, yeah, I'll the crazy sure one with all the changes Charles and everything. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Oh, that's so, what a great thing to watch. What a great process to watch something that requires that much versatility from one guy. In fact, when I was very young, he and I got to be part of a playwriting program for where, um, again, they brought in a playwright and we workshopped a production of Frankenstein for um, the Honolulu Children's Theater. And David was in this, so I and I was so admired this guy so much. I and I was a great mimic at the time, so I had this beautiful voice. So I, I could mimic David's stage voice, like his just sort of speaking voice was. He reminded me of um, 
God, what's silly? Out of my one of my favorite character actors, um, from Casablanca, um, Claude Rains, Peter Claude Rains, Claude Rains. Okay, that was Claude Rains. Yeah, yeah. sorry, there's, there's a few in there. No, yeah. he, had, he had this voice like Claude Rains, and um, so I um, yeah, so I admired David greatly, and then he kind of mentored me along the ways of preparing for college and. But no, but I never did anything. I never, I think actually I did make um, 65 bucks once for doing a play at, um, with these same playwrights at Seattle Center. We did, um, which is sort of the big, um, Seattle Center is where they had the World's Fair. Okay. In 63. Okay. And they, they have a great amphitheater there and somebody decided to put on a play. So I think I made like 65 bucks to do, to do a, um, a play there. Was it an original? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was written um, by Carl Sander, who was our playwright from the Young Artist Training Program. Oh, that's awesome. And I took so, that money and I bought I bought the most '80s jacket. Like this thing was right out of a Yaha video. Or a, was it the uh, a a puffy '80s jacket with the sleeves rolled up kind of thing? No, it was like, it was like a high collared with like oh. an kind of overlapping um, angular. Um, I'm pretty sure there was some there was some padded um, sleeves in there. Nice, nice. Like it could have been in a Robert Palmer video. Oh, fantastic! Good for you. Good for you. Um, yeah, I yeah, hope there really, are photos. It was, it was straight out of the uh, Take on Me video. Oh, glorious! Oh, sign me up. Um, so you went. Uh, you mentioned going down to to L.A. for your theater school auditions. Um, you got in and went to USC, which is a pretty competitive program with a lot of great. <clears throat> one of the great things about USC is that um, they've got a real working faculty. Like, that that faculty are are still working. They miss class because they're doing gigs, for better or for worse, but they've got, like, a real foot-on-the-ground sort of quality to their instruction, I hear, because they're, they're still in the thick of it. Did you, did you feel that? Did you get a sense of, like, oh, these are actual professional, still professional actors who, who happen to be teaching us? Um, yeah, and certainly at the time I was there, which was, see, I got there in 87 and left in 91. Okay. So some of our professors were like, honest, got real like theater actors from LA. Mm-hmm. There was, I can't quite remember that. I think it was the, it was either the company theater or the group theater in LA. There was, one of my professors was um, rather famous for being the first guy to drop trial on an LA stage. That's magnificent. What, in a production of Hair or what? I, I don't think it was that um, formal. Okay. Oh, I see. <laughs> it was a very, it was a very bold tempest. <laughs> yeah. Jack Romay recipes. But then we got a lot of those, a lot of his colleagues came back to direct our shows. Oh, cool. So we had some really hardcore, we had some really hardcore um, early 60s, 70s theater guys and gals uh, teaching us. Well, I mean, for a while there, um, what's his face? Um, oh God, he is the killer in the first Dirty Harry movie. Andrew Robinson, I think, is his name. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, Andy, Andy was there. Andy yeah, went, okay. We became the associate dean right after I left. Oh no, kidding! Wow. Yeah, he's been teaching there on and off for for decades, I think. And that's, I mean, yeah, what's cooler than having a you know a guy that gets killed by Clint Eastwood as your uh, as your acting professor? Um, what kind of stuff did you do when you were at USC? What kind of plays did you do? I, I got really lucky early on. I was um, I was sort of on this. I was sort of. I figured I was destined to be a classical theater actor. I did a lot of Shakespeare and 
there. I was doing Shakespeare and Chekhov, and I got my first main stage. Totally boasting. Got my first Go main stage my freshman year, which um, was uh, not very common. What? So and I'm did, gonna I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna lead you down this boasting path for a moment here. Um, this because is where we're. Uh, but no, but I, I, it's this is the place for it. One and two, I think it 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 helps give some insight to your arc. So here you are. You show up. You're what are you six one, six two, somewhere in there? I would say I was six foot. Yeah, I mean I'm six foot now. So I was probably six foot then. I don't think. Okay. I'm but I was um, tall. I had a super deep voice, and I yeah. could um, grow a beard really, really easily. Right, right. Was your what? What uh, stage? This is eighty-seven to ninety-one. That could mean anything. What stage was your hair in? Were you in super long hair, uh, Tim Amundsen era? Or? It, it was. It was. It, it eventually became. Yeah, my freshman year was when I first like kid, eighteen-year-old kid away from home. Immediately grew my hair out as long as I could, because there's nobody telling me to cut it until it got to the point it was just too much even for the roles I was playing. <laughs> well, because you've got so a quality. You have a quality that isn't super common in because you were only a couple years older than me but you have a, a quality that isn't particularly common in actors our age of our generation which is a sort of a dashing air to you and and you're you're you can it it's it's no but it's it it's it's very natural it's not affected there's just a little more errol flynn in your dna than the average actor who was born in the late 60s early 70s because we all grew up watching you know dustin hoffman and al pacino and gene hackman and that wave of actors studio guys and you've got all that stuff but you've also got this quality about you that is a little more old school and a little more um oh god i'm gonna comfortably say foppish you could, I will totally embrace the popish. It definitely comes across in Lasseter, wouldn't you say? So freshman year, I'm doing, I get uh, Claudius in, um, no, sorry, I get Capulet in Romeo and Juliet. Oh, wow. And they gave me the most amazing, the most amazing cape. Like, it was like a full-on Superman, like Superman cape. It was like floor, almost floor length. And well, let me tell you, man, I could work that cape. Talk about popish. <laughs> did, did the role, did the play become a play about a cape? Was it less about cross star-crossed lovers and more about uh, uh, this one dad and his cape? <laughs> yeah, I think there were some dead kids in there too, but um, mostly about <laughs> the dead girl, the, 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 the dead girl's dad's cape. Um, what um, what else did you? I because you know I I didn't go to I didn't go to theater school, so I'm so jealous of people who got to do these enormous classical roles when they were like 19 years old. I love to hear stories about this. What else did you get to do? I got to play Claudius and Hamlet and Hamlet at one point. Oh my and, god! Um, and then my senior year, I did Iago. <gasps> That's wow. Um, unless I'm mistaken, Iago is the first or second most what? amount of lines in a Shakespeare play. Am I right about that? It is the it, it is the it's the first. Yeah, it's the it's the first, and Hamlet's second. Yeah, it's a popular misconception that Hamlet talks the most, but it's actually Iago who just cannot shut the fuck up. Okay, this is before you've got like a cell phone with uh, with a, an app that can help you learn lines on it. How does a twenty one year old guy get off book with all that text? Um, that was just good old fashioned. I used to write my lines down at the time. Oh yeah, I still have to. Yeah. So I was just buckling down and writing out all the dialogue and pounding them in my head. It wasn't. It was college. wasn't doing much of anything else. Oh, okay. So it. So yeah, so that I is also. I mean, it's funny. My my daughter's at an art school right now, and I'm always asking her to be kind to her academic teachers. 
um, uh, who are, you know, stuck teaching biology to a bunch of, you know, art teens, which I don't wish on anyone. Um, did you, did you find that like your, your non-major electives really went to the, went to the wayside? Yeah. I mean, I tried to do everything I could to focus around theater. Although, because I did have to take some general ed stuff and for okay. some godful reason, I took it, I found myself in an ROTC class about the history of a war, which I thought, okay, that, you know, that's history. I, I should learn this stuff. What was that class like for, for, uh, gentle, non-athletic, uh, uh, Timothy Amundsen? I just really tried to take as much of the history side of it as I could and, and approach it as, as a role and going, this is oh, all okay. just research for some role I may play in the future. Ah, interesting. Do you feel it has come up? Well, it's interesting right now. I'm remembering stuff as, the horrors that are going on in the Ukraine right now, they're talking about basically the war of attrition. I keep thinking back to, there was a chapter on George Washington's war of attrition. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly still remembering. The thing that did come back, not necessarily that class, but um, my geology class, because I had to take one science. The reason I got a BFA is because there was no math, no hard science. Right, right. Because I'm the guy, it took, it took me five, I think five tries to get to pass the math competency test to, to finally graduate high school, which I think because um, I was like I was really involved. I was class president and stuff, so I was really close with our high school principal. I think he finally just was like, "Yeah, you're, you're done. Yeah, give me your signature. Let me just sort. Let me write. Let me just fill this form out." I eventually I did a show called Sequest, where I was sort of the science guy, and my very first monologue on and I actually had it was a TV show, and I had a monologue because we called my character my character's name was Doctor Levin. We called him Levin the Explainer because it would bring me into then get just get, just lay pipe of ex exposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had an entire speech explaining carstification to the crew of this submarine. It was, it was really, it was, it, I, I was grateful for all my Shakespeare training to be able to make sense of these incredibly um, scientific terms. But I, I kept, that was one of the, for some strange reasons, that's one of the few text, like general regular education textbook I kept. So I went back to my geology textbook from college and, and looked up the carstification chapter. But that's great. So you actually have some idea of what you're talking about. You have some, you can, this isn't just words coming out of your mouth phonetically. You have some authority. Exactly. But, um, and I think, yeah, it's like Shakespeare. You can't do Shakespeare unless you know what you're talking about. Hey everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here, DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger IV. Hi, hi, hi. Can't wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. The job that got you into the union, and I just watched the episode last night, was um, a, uh, a a genuinely classic episode of of Seinfeld. I I knew your storyline. I forgot that your storyline was the same week as Seinfeld's Dirty Talk thing. I I, I had forgot they were in the same episode. Um, it is it's just one scene, but 
the great thing about that show is that they give everybody, everybody gets a moment. You know, like the smallest little little one scene appearance gets a moment of uh, uh, gets a joke or a bit or an interaction that's super uncomfortable. And you've got one with George. But what is it like to be a year out of drama school and you're on the show that is already like it's in its fourth season? It is a phenomenon. It is appointment television. My buddies and I, people came over to our house to watch it at our off campus house. Um, on Thursday nights, it was what you did on a Thursday night was you sat down and watched Seinfeld. Do you, are you weighed down by that pressure? You know what? I had actually, because I'm waiting tables at the time as an actor in LA trying to scrape some dough together. I'd never actually seen the show. <gasps> Amazing. But, um, and it was really, it was like, I was, it was part of my career. I was just, I was still, I mean, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have my side card yet. So I get into this room to audition and it's it's eight. The part is eight words. <laughs> I have no idea what's going on in the scene. And um, so I go in. And I think Larry David's there, and Tom Cisneros, who's directing the episode, I think says to Larry, "Do you want to explain the scene to him?" And Larry goes, "No, let's just see what he does." <laughs> so totally just flying by. And I would say whatever the hell I did, apparently it was funnier than the redheaded kid who went after me. Okay. So suddenly I find myself on set, having never walked on a soundstage before. Oh over at CBS Radford. Yeah. And figure, well, they'll explain it to me now. Little realizing they didn't really have time to um, teach the um, the one day guest star with the eight words A, how to act, and B, um, what that was a scene about. So I literally just, um, um, the guy playing my dad, whose name I just looked at, um, that wonderful Warren, Warren Frost, uh... the amazing actor from Twin Peaks. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Grace Zabriskie's the mom, um, the dad is, I'm gonna look this up right now, uh, Henry Ross? No, Henry Ross was a character. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, haha, you're right, haha, 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 amazing. Um, you're right, Warren Frost, Warren Frost. Holy crap, I actually remember that. Warren Frost. Yeah, you're really close. Warren he Frost, He played a I very apologize. grumpy man, so I just, I just sort of, um, yeah, like his character was super grumpy, and my, and my lines were kind of grumpy, so I, was, I literally just went, okay, dad's grumpy. Um, Apple didn't fall far from the tree, and I just kind of played. There was a lot of character development with my, with my eight lines. That's fantastic, so just, though, because, I mean, you can, you can take your cues from, from anything, but that just makes a lot of logical sense. This guy is my dad. He raised me. I'm supposed to be at college, but I'm conspicuously sitting in the living room. I've probably picked up a lot from this guy. That makes perfect sense. There's, there's actually an exchange in the lines with um, Jason Alexander. I mean, when he comes in, has his future brother-in-law. Yeah. And Susan, my, my sister, says, this is my little brother, Ricky, I'm from college. And he goes, oh, hey. Great. What what are you studying? And I think the line was, or what's your major? He goes, and I say, say I think the first is, I don't have one. And the other one was, I'm not sure or something. But it, the point is, it was it was one specific thing, and I, I based my role off of, uh, I think it was not sure. So I just think, okay, he's just dumb. Yeah. Not that if not that you're dumb if you don't have a major in college, obviously. But but um, if you're not sure what your major is, that doesn't speak well of your intelligence. True. And um, so I was playing that. And then um, they get into the um, we get into rehearsing it and they tweak the line to um, don't have one. Yeah. So suddenly they think I've based my entire character off of, of a he's grumpy and not that smart. It's suddenly out the window. 
Now what do I do? But, but the great thing is the first day on set. So I walk into the soundstage at CBS Radford, again, having never been on a stage before. And I see a bunch of food. And I, I wander over to the craft service area, reach for a pot of coffee. And they're out of coffee. So it was an industrial coffee machine, which was exactly like the one I, I was using at China Rockets, where I was working at the time, slinging burgers on Melrose. Okay. So out of muscle memory, I, I dumped the grounds and looked, I started making a pot of coffee. My God. Dump the grounds, look for the filters in the coffee. Guy washes over and goes, oh, no, what are you doing? I said, oh, you got a coffee. I was just making another pot. He goes, no, no, that's my job. And I just went, oh, this is sweet. Like, I'm in a place where people make me coffee. Awesome. That is magnificent. I feel like I tried to help carry something on my very first set, and uh, they're really strict, because you could hurt yourself doing that, so they're really strict about you not doing that. I got barked at for that. You just got a, a, a warm chuckle for trying to make a, a coffee for the crew. That is a, a wonderful story. So did you do that? I don't know if you remember this, because it's, it's like 30 years ago now, but did you do that scene um, on tape night in front of the audience? In front of my eyes, uh, you know, I almost don't remember. I'm sure I did. It must okay. have been. Okay, that's because that's a you know that's, yeah, that's a... That. only because only because I remember um, in between our final our final rehearsal and taping, um, sitting out going and sitting outside the uh, the stage and Jerry's leaning against the wall, squatting down, leaning against the wall of the stage, eating an apple, and I made some comment of it being uh, my first job, and I'm going. Oh, it's your first job. You're great. Congratulations. It was very sweet. That's why there wasn't a great Seinfeld. But I remember him being very nice. And years later, I was in the the Canis parking lot, Canis on Fairfax, with my dad. I run into Jason Alexander, introduced Jason to my dad. And Jason, who will forever be the mentor of all mentions to me, says to my dad, my dad, oh, congratulations. You've got a very talented son here. That's which amazing. Which makes, makes my heart, again, grow four sizes even bigger. Just reliving that moment. So to have a guy like Jason Alexander tell your dad, who's worthy of your kid, his kids in LA trying to be an actor, to have a comedy TV star tell your dad that your son is talented was um, a pretty special moment. That is lovely. You you, you get... So I got my sack card. Yeah. Went back the next day to Sturban Burgess at Johnny Rock. It's not understanding why no one understood that I'm now a TV star. <laughs> This is which Johnny Rockets, the one on Melrose? This is the one on Melrose? This is the original one on Melrose, yeah. Yeah, it's not there anymore, but yeah, okay. That's glorious. Um, Yeah, so what is that like? Because I I had to go back after a couple of... uh, uh, After a couple of uh, TV gigs to to some day job stuff. Is it... um, Was it just sort of par for the course? Did you, in fact, have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder? It's fine if you did. Um... I probably, I'm sure I did, but then I realized I wasn't going to get me any jobs really quickly. So I um, eventually just realized it was part of the course. I was like, I better really do well in my auditions now. Nice. The, re- the real uh, kick in the cojones was um, I got dropped on my agency at the time. Uh, after or before you booked the Seinfeld gig? After the Seinfeld gig. Oh, for fuck's sake. I had, um, after my college showcase, I was one of the, the lucky guys who, who I, I got the manager. I got a card from my manager, from a man who became my manager. We eventually semi, I, I um, stumbled my way into William Morris. Wow. My first agent, there was this amazing catcher named Laura Kennedy, who's a very sweet woman, who was friends with my manager. He called Laura and said, um, I got a kid, you're going to love him. So I go into, I have this meeting with Laura and the whole the whole gang. And, and this is for this sort of nice uh, chemistry, chemistry meeting. And 
And I called her afterward and she's talking. She's like, you know what? They're not going to let me do it. It's like, you're great. I can get you a job and they're not going to let me do it. So she, but sure enough, today, so she, she got me an audition for um, 90210 for a, a guest star. It was okay. actually a recurring character that I got a callback on. Okay. So because I got a callback on this 90210 audition, the agency said, okay, I'll take him on. Maybe he'll work. Wow. So I get, and eventually I get, I get the Seinfeld job, get my card thinking, oh, here we are. And, um, or get, I didn't actually get the card. I got tapped hardly. But um, then Laura left the agency and I was then left with a, a guy who didn't know me and, or know what to do with me. And again, like I'm, you know, a 21 year old floppy haired skinny kid with uh, no credits. Mm. But, uh, but a very theatrical actor. Like, John was destined to be a, a, a classical theater actor. I mean, I was pretty sure that's what it's all going to be because because there was also some some um, Chekhov in there, right? And uh, my first my perfect my first professional LA gig theater gig was um, an Ibsen play down at LATC. So I'd actually made money as an actor doing theater, and um, thought, well, this is just this is gonna be it. And I, I'd always thought, should I go to New York or should I stay in LA? Mm. But b- before I went to SC, I took a summer program at the American Academy in New York, and uh, just to test those waters. And I thought. So getting out of high school, I thought, um, should I go to New York or go to L.A.? But I always sort of figured I'd want to be in L.A. eventually because I knew that there wasn't any money in theater. And eventually I wanted to try and be in TV and make that Hollywood money, yo. Sure, sure. Um, so, you uh, uh, At one point, speaking of, of L.A. theater, you end up doing – I got a text from you yesterday that said, I am supposed to ask you about doing Jacobian tragedy in West Hollywood. Here I go. Timothy, yeah. when did you do a Jacobian tragedy in West Hollywood? So just pr- about 1990, just prior to uh, graduation, I got hooked with a theater company with, with about a bunch of SC grads doing um, Revengers tragedy. Yeah. That'll, that'll classic. Puts butts in seats. Jacobian. That one. Yeah. Which, um, well, alert! There's a lot of this stage is littered with dead people at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, Tate Donovan was a grad of SC, and um, he was in a theater company. He was supposed to play the role and had to leave for Europe to go shoot Memphis Bell. Oh wow! He'll put in this part and um, at this little theater on Melrose Place on La Cienega, which at the time it was this beautiful space, which I think was a um, one of the early evangelical churches at the time in LA. Okay. And now it's a, like a rug store that sells, you know, $20,000 Persian rug. You're not doing Shakespeare here. You're doing a deep cut, deep cut, uh, almost medieval tragedy. Because I think that's pre-Renaissance, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, uh, do you get butts and seats for something like that? Yeah, there were there were butts and seats. There were a few matinees that had um, less people than actors. Okay, sure, sure. <laughs> because, like I said, it's, it's Revenger's tragedy. Mm-hmm. Every, the stage is littered with dead people at the end. I'm one of them. Sure. And I hear, I wanted, the, I wanted the blue hair matinees. I hear, they're all dead, but that one's still breathing. Amazing. Was that you? Were you the one who was breathing? I'm sure I was. <laughs> we, we had a, um, I can't remember the name of our director at the time, but he was, he was an Englishman who um, would occasionally take to um, drinking a six pack of Guinness in rehearsals and then screaming. Screaming the actors being like, oh, you fucking Americans. <laughs> so it was very exciting. 
Um, and a great um, introduction to that world. Going, okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not amongst, I'm out of, I'm not in Kansas. Yeah. But one of the best things to come out of that show was at the corner of, of Melrose Place and La Cienega was a restaurant called Get This Melrose Place. Mm-hmm. And um, an older actor one day gave me probably the best piece of advice I'd ever gotten as, as a young actor struggling in L.A. He said, figure out where, who's got the good happy hours. Oh. So, and it just happened, this bar on the corner had a great happy hour. So I could go in, drink a beer for an hour, nurse a beer for an hour, and have seven plates of um, potstickers and Chinese chicken salad. And that's dinner. Where I met my buddy Charlie, who eventually became on to be a very good friend of government and in my next theater company. And this company, we eventually would do sort of guerrilla theater around town. And we started doing, uh, one of the guys, Michael, opened a um, sort of an actor's gym on the Gardner stages. So we'd just be a bunch of actors doing monologues. We sort of down, it's Gardner just above Hollywood Boulevard, I think. Oh, yeah, I know that space. Just above, between, between Sunset and Hollywood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So a bunch of actors doing monologues for each other and some people were working and others trying to figure out how they'll do this. And so we started doing these monologues. We do sort of nights at like Highland Grounds on Highland. Like suddenly you're doing monologues in coffee houses. Right, right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I know Highland Grounds too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that is also right above Melrose Avenue. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fun, uh, the 90s in LA, I didn't get here till 02, but the 90s in LA always sound a little kind of dreamy and halcyon to me. Um, it just, and maybe it's just the lack of social media uh, cut down on the douchebaggery a little bit, but uh, it just seems like a, a really, a really uh, fun time. I want to flash forward real quick to where I fell in love with you. Um, I speak, of course, of a show that comes up a great deal on this podcast, David Milch's Deadwood. Um, mm-hmm. When you, at what point, did, when when you auditioned for that, for one thing, when you auditioned for that, did you get the whole pilot script or did you just get your sides? I think I just got my sides. Sides of the breakdown. So that is a very stylized kind of writing. Everybody compares it to Shakespeare. How do you go into something like that? How much, uh, how much description is in the stage directions for you to come out with this, this, uh, this tenderfoot, as they call him frequently? Uh, the dude was, um, as they also call him, was the breakdown was really specific of him being basically a rich dilettante. Okay. Completely out. So I had enough of it, and I can tell by the from just the words. Who, who the guy was and having just come out of theater school and again thinking I was going to be a classical stage actor I go to Paramount and I'm excited as hell just to be on the Paramount lot because Sunset Boulevard is one of my favorite movies of the time yeah and that's all that's all shot just right there or right out in the open on the so Paramount lot yeah the audition was in the old writer's building oh nice and I walk in and I'm like I'm in this I'm in this beautiful suit and this um, really great tie and you know you do the thing where I'm sure all actors do this. You immediately go to the sign-up sheet and you, you take the glance and you see what agencies the other actors are with. They go, oh, crap. That guy's at a bunch better agency. Shit, he's going to... Which I, as I got older, I stopped doing... I stopped that self-sabotage. Oh, don't do that. Don't don't scan the sign-in sheet. That's that's absolute murder. Don't do that at all, yeah. 
because I had since after William Morris and I parted ways, I went from the biggest agency to a very small agency at the time. Okay. And um, so yeah, seeing that those UTAs and William Morris's and the Gersh's on the on the menu was um, intimidating to me. Mm-hmm. So I see, so I see this. So again, I'm in this beautiful suit with a great tie, and he's he's like what it's like 19th century um, New York guy, right? So um, and I look around the room and I see this guy in kind of Levi's and suede cowboy boots, and like I called him like the great Hollywood unwashed at the time, like four days growth of beard. And I'm like, did you not read the fucking script? What is wrong with you? <laughs> like sort of this this guy who's like way too cool for school in a t-shirt and jeans and boots. Of course. So he goes in. Does his audition. The walls are so thin in these old buildings. Mm-hmm. I hear every word that's going on. Oh, the worst. The worst. No, but in this case, okay. it was great because I then hear David Milch talking to uh, Walter Hill about this guy and like give me notes on this guy's audition. Walter Hill, who directed the the pilot of who Deadwood. directed the pilot, yeah. So David going, no, it's going to be this, it's going to be this. So I'm getting the laundry list of what, of what David wanted. <laughs> I'm looking at your face right now. That's what amazing. <laughs> so... But I do have to say, feather my own cap, all the notes were what I was going to do anyway. Ah, good. So I go in, and I've already got a little wind in myself, because I, I'm, I'm pretty confident my choices are, are going to be the right ones. And again, because I, I knew I knew how to use heightened language. And basically always stood in first position. Oh, wow. First position. Uh, did, you t- did you take ballet in, in drama school? Yeah, yeah. And I, then I couldn't stop standing up in first position for years because I was always on stage. Or so I thought. Okay. Until I finally, I had directors on stage going, stop standing like that. <laughs> Stand normal. So I um, I do the piece and uh, Walter Hill goes, Milch is, um, Mr. Milch is um, kind. And Walter says to David, or he says to me, he goes, young yeah, man, that's a very fine piece of acting. Oh. So I'm feeling pretty good and walk. I, I think I walked out and called. I don't know if I had a cell phone at the time, but um, either went to a payphone or called my wife Allison and said, "I think this one's mine." Nice. Like it was one of those where most of the time, I never thought. Very, very rarely have I walked out of auditions and gone, "Yeah, this one's mine." But that's when I was like, "This, this one's mine." You know, you so know for certain when you've blown it. You know absolutely yeah. for dead certain when you've blown it, but. Knowing that you've got it, that can be a little uh, that can be a little iffier. Cut to hearing they do want me for the role, and again, it's it's a guest star on the pilot, right? And um, I was doing judging Amy at the time. Okay. So, and I think I was already committed to an episode, so um, the schedule didn't work out. So I didn't get the part in Deadwood. Because HBO went, what do you mean there's a conflict with, with this actor? Go to the, there's no conflict. Go to the next guy. Wow. So the next guy got it. I'm looking at my ones. One day I get I get a phone call from my manager saying, hey, uh, like, David Milch and Walter would like to know if you want to, if you can drive on to Santa Clarita tomorrow and meet them. Wow. So I said, yes. Yeah. So I drove, you know, the several hours north. Yeah. Go on set. And um, I see Walter and David. And David goes, hey, you want to work tomorrow? Oh my God! Like, uh, yes, sir. So I guess what had happened is, the actor who got the job, he um, rehearsed one scene. Something didn't go well. David went off, and I—I I don't know if this is true, but I'd heard Walter went off. I'm going to go to a cup of coffee and say, "Give me the other guy." So wow. that apparently is how I got. And by then, um, my commitments on Judge Amy were done. 
Oh my god! So I show up to the set, walk into the scene. It's already lit and blocked. My head is spinning that I'm getting that I'm a getting to play this role. And I meet um, gosh, I'm blanking on Molly Parker, who the amazing Molly Parker plays my my wife on the show. And it's a scene where like there's kind of intricate blocking. I walk in, it's a head full of steam. Of it's the um, darling, we bought a gold mine and. We sort of had this spinning kiss, and um, and I had this kind of rather big monologue about how great we're going to be, mm-hmm. and literally just trying to like just the fear of trying to figure out how the hell I make this other guy's blocking work for me. But we shot the scene; I didn't get fired. <laughs> and again, I was still pretty—I was still pretty new to acting at the time, in a lot of ways. New to acting on on camera, on, anyway. On camera. Yeah, which but what's interesting about Deadwood and everyone mentions this is it's that combination of close frame heightened language that is a little unusual. Usually if your language is that heightened you're in a theater, there's you know the nearest person is 20 feet away from you in the front row. Here you're framed like chest up, but you're still doing this very grandiose verbiage that almost has a meter to it. And everyone Absolutely. go ahead. No, I in that case, I was very really lucky that I got to work with Molly because she's she's such a quiet actress and so still and so I could really she just was very open and I could zone into her and locking on on her rhythms and take them over. Then the first day, like the, the first big big day, it's not the very first day, but cut to my next episode when they decide to keep this guy around. Mm-hmm. And um, however briefly, this, <laughs> however briefly, poor Deb Rom. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Poor Brom. But I'm doing this scene with um, Ian McShane, mm. who I was a huge fan of. Yeah. So and I I'm walking down the stairs to this in this saloon, and Ian has this amazing grandiose introduction of like Brom Garrett, the Scourge of Deadwood. And I go up and I and I do a shot of whiskey whiskey with him, and we do this scene. And I literally and I'm so excited. I'm I'm like almost shaking. And I literally thought to myself. Tim, you're in a pretend bar drinking pretend whiskey with Ian McShane, a guy who you want to be. And your character wants to be Swearingen. So don't fucking act. Just say the words and be in the moment. Like, you're already, it's already here. The circumstances are already real. Don't act. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I imagine when you're surrounded by people that good, and I've had a couple tastes of this, you just, if you're just really listening and reacting honestly, you will, you know, aspire to be Ian McShane. You will fall in love with Molly Parker. You will, you know, ache for her approval. You will be intimidated by uh, by uh, Timothy Oliphant. You know, you'll have all of those those moments will just kind of be, it's a, it's a feature, not a bug, I should imagine. <laughs> Yeah, and William Sanderson was in the scene as well, who's oh. was so dynamite. And um, yeah, it was, really, it was just um, just shut up and say the words and be real with these people. I think that's really sound advice in general. Just you know, make it about the other person. You know, get out of your head by really by just looking into the other person's eyes. There's that old James Cagney line about you know, hit your mark, look the other fellow in the eye, and tell the truth. And it sounds like that. Oh, it was Tracy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a sense of how kind of historic Deadwood was going to be in the TV landscape? I think I did. Again, I only, I think I did three episodes. I guess it was like it was that yeah. thing where 
I, I'm dead. They keep me around. They decided to keep writing me in. But uh, I remember going to this read through for the second episode, and um, also being on set and just watching the other actors going by and seeing, like actor after actor, and going, "Holy shit, they got that guy for this role! This is incredible!" Like just seeing this cast and realizing, "Yeah, this this is a big deal." Well, those first few episodes are bonkers because you've got uh, the great Jim Beaver, uh, Keith Carradine still on the show. He only lives a couple extra episodes past you. John Hawks on it. I mean, there's so many good people. Uh, Brad Dourif, who I keep trying to get for this podcast. He is my white whale. <laughs> really? Ah. Uh, snow Brad a little bit. I'll see if I can help you with that. Oh, uh, grease those wheels and I will be forever in your debt. Um, uh, yeah, um, it, it's, it's such a, um, I did a rewatch, um, before they, they released the film. Um, so you get killed off of this great show super early on. You get thrown off a cliff and your last words are mother, which has got to be, <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't <laughs> laugh. <laughs> no, but I, um, I remember this never in a million years would I do this now, but saying to Mr. Milch. Really, mother? That's that's how I'm going out. <laughs> he's like, yeah, because because it's fucking perfect for your character. And then, of course, now thinking back, absolutely. But the the ego in me was like, I don't want to be the guy that says mother. Oh, it's so humiliating, but it is. He's right. It's perfect for the character. This guy is completely out of his element. He is a tenderfoot in every sense. What is Milch like is he i mean he can't be easy to talk to necessarily not mean necessarily but i imagine he'd be crazy intimidating uh he was intimidating but he was he was always very pleasant to me yeah i mean he, he does i mean he's a, a very charming man which when i was like but you realize he's a effing genius he yeah. would come in and um it was called he would milch the scene like i've been doing this for a while i, I think i know how to, i know how to break down a character in a scene and then he would come in and sort of give his um, Yale professor would take over and he would give a brief, like he would give a sort of a lesson on what the scene's really about. Okay. And I would always go, oh shit, that's what we're, that's what this is about. Having no idea that the levels he was going to. There's a gorgeous moment of nonverbal acting in it where you are getting ready to go downstairs, maybe to meet oh, Swearingen. John. Um, do you this know the moment I'm talking about? She's asleep. I, was, I wanted to tell you the story. I oh, really? This, story. I was, this almost makes me cry. It's, it's one of my favorite moments ever on a set. So I had, um, yeah, so he's getting dressed up to go up prospecting, I think. And, That's right. And it's, so there's, there's no dialogue in it. And Walter Hill's sitting on an apple box underneath the camera lens. And it, it was really, it was silent movie acting. And David's on set. And he starts directing me. I think I'd, I'd had offered to um, the room that, so I would love to see, to show Braun putting on his cowboy hat for the first time. Wow. Cause yeah. it's this whole, it's this thing. And um, so the scene's really, it's like, it's him in a mirror, like looking at himself and while almost asleep and David, so David's directing and like directing me to like put on the hat and do this and straighten your hat and he goes, now cough. And then once my hat's on, I'm all dressed and present. David goes, now cough. Because I'm trying to, I'm trying to wake her up so she can, so she can witness me and my glory. Amazing. Because now I feel like an asshole. <laughs> and it was, it was the greatest moment ever. And I, I'm still, I get, I get a little um, goosebumpy thinking about it. Oh, I get, I can only imagine. Yeah, I'm just be like, Milch, give me this like the silent movie directing, like, cough. Now I feel like an asshole. 
which the asshole part was really easy for me, being an actor feeling, with that imposter syndrome. And the tragedy is that she is awake. She's hiding the fact that she's awake. <laughs> That's the really heartbreaking part, is that she kind of is awake and she just does not want to engage, but you see her eyes kind of flicker yeah. open slightly. Oh, I love that scene so much. It's, it's funny, for a show that's so famous for its dialogue, uh, the, the one of the moments that really sticks with me is this gorgeous little silent moment. I got to rewatch it now that I know what's going on uh, just off camera. Um, so when you get killed off Deadwood, is there a sense of like, oh shit, what now? I mean, I've just done something really good. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. So I was. So then it's like, and just sort of somewhere holding out hope that they bring Brom back as a ghost. Yeah. Or Brom has because, a twin um, brother. <laughs> I think I did pitch that at one point. <laughs> They're like, get the, get out of here, not glad. Because I mean, they brought the incredible Garrett Delhunt back. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did two different roles. Yeah. As if he wasn't amazing enough as Jim McC- I'm trying to remember the character's name. The man who killed Bill Hickok. But um he was so amazing in that role and um and that eye that he had, his mm-hmm. messed up eye, mm-hmm. was not makeup. That that was just Garrett doing that with his eye on his on his own. Really? That whole that because in the first season he plays the guy who kills Wild Bill uh Cody and that's his that's his own eye? Just there's no like Yeah, he has got it's got kind of this hooded eye, but no, that was uh And Garrett God. was so handsome they they had to like they took a Shears to his beard one time, just like messed up to Clippers, kind of messed up his beard to make him look all wrangly. Oh my god! And um, then they brought him back as that incredibly smooth character who who loved Basil Hayden and um, unfortunately killing prostitutes. Uh, yeah, and then eventually kills himself. Yeah, I could talk Deadwood all day, oh. but we're gonna move on. So, how long between? So between Deadwood and Psych, there's probably some work, but I don't think there's a ton of big work in there, is there? Well, there was um, there was Sequest. That was between Deadwood. Oh, and... hang on. No, 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 I'm wrong. Yeah, uh, no, it's, it, no. Sequest is nineties. Let's see. So Deadwood probably ends in oh four, oh five, um, oh, oh like oh six. Deadwood ends. No, and... there was, that was definitely the downtime. Yeah, okay. So I see a couple things here. I see, you know, the stuff that we all do, an episode of this, an episode of that. You do a CSI because you're not an L.A. actor unless you've done a CSI. It's like being in New York and not doing a Law & Order. Law and Order, right. Yeah, it's, it's you know, we, we've, I, I, I almost had a Miami. I kept coming close to Miami, and I never got one. And oh, I, will... I, get, I, got a, I got a Miami story. Uh, oh, really? Hit it. Well, did you work with Caruso? I did. So it was the days of... They had just started doing the one-day guest star. Okay. So I get this guest star role, and they're like, it's one day. And, and it was the first time I really – and again, I just – I didn't have a lot of um, wind in my sails. And I and my manager decided, like, that was my line in the sand is I'm not doing a one-day guest star. Interesting. Like, you want to – you want to – you want to – you're writing a guest star. Mm-hmm. You want to you – you want a professional actor, then hire – then pay a professional actor rate. Right. So we, so we draw a line in the sand. I go to do the scene, and it's – um. This day was the playoffs were on, and David wanted to really get out of get out of finish the day, so we could go to the trailer and watch basketball. Okay. So um, it was a scene with a lot of people, just a hugely number of actors in the scene, and they do they go like around the horn, and it was and so finally gets my coverage, and it's one of those like, and now is when I earn my money. So I bet I better nail this. I better nail this line. Oh God. 
And I do it. And David walks up to me. Lindsay goes, we have a professional. And fist bumps me. Oh, that's fantastic. Which uh, which made me feel very good. Uh, that, ter- that I was so scared because he's got a prickly reputation. I do not think I'm speaking yeah. out of turn when I say this. I am usually fairly political on this show. I don't like to gossip, but Caruso's reputation precedes him. Um, so that could that story could have gone any number of places. I was terrified for you for a moment there. That was <laughs> you know I was terrified. Imagine me. I, I, I imagine David Caruso no, was wandering over to you. He's going. He's going to kill me. He's going to start crying. Yeah. I, what's going to happen? I what's <laughs> part of getting psyched? Um, or in between the psychs and the yeah, there were there was the downtime areas where um, I think Alice and I were engaged, and um, I just could not get ahead of. I couldn't get like three three episodes of anything in a row. Right. Yep. And um, I think I was work. She got me helped me get a job working the door at a club just to make some dough so we could get married. Oh, nice. And I went. Um, I think I'd done sequest at this time already, but um, I. It was one of those days where, like, I humbled myself to the universe. Like, I will do anything at this point. And um, a buddy of mine had a job had a a company that moved furniture into uh, for designers. So some rich person would buy a couch and then I was one of the guys who would deliver the couch and take it in this mansion in Beverly Hills. And they'd say, put it there. No, 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 no. Put it over there. And I went, okay. And it was there. I was like, he was like, look, I'll give you 60 bucks cash. If you want to come with furniture for a day. And then, so I did that. I went, okay, fine. I am, I am back to manual labor, having done construction stuff prior to uh, college. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, fine. And I really feel like, because I went, okay, yes, I will move furniture. I will go do manual labor if it keeps food on my table and my fiance happy. And the very next day, I get a job, I get an audition for Xena, which was a massive cult hit. Yeah. And this was right at the time where I was like, if I could just get three jobs in a row. And it was a three episode arc. But in New Zealand. And so that I'm on a plane. I'm, I'm on a plane to New Zealand. Wow. Working with. People who are still like my lifelong friends. That had to have been such. And I, and I, a... So it, it was that moment of. Yeah, I really think it was. It was that moment of like humbling myself to the universe, going, "Okay, this would." Having had the conversation every actor has, what can I do for money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with a theater degree? Yeah, like I have no <laughs> office skills. Right. That's I, I, there's so many stories. I, I, I like to think that I'm sort of above and beyond magical thinking, but there's so many stories of people being like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to grad school. And then the job comes through. You know, it, it is it, it happened to me early on in the pandemic. I was I was kind of thinking like I, I might have. I wasn't sad necessarily, but I was like, I, I think I'm just kind of, you know, I think I've done my best work. It might be behind me. Eh. And then I got an HBO Max gig that turned into something else. And, it, you know, it, it's amazing how, um, how, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. I can't think of a better way to phrase it. The universe listens when you give up. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm a full believer in, in manifestation. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I really am. No, it, 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 it proves itself true again and again. Site question was there a particular movie homage that you loved doing on that show because they did so many movie homages they'd have feature directors come in to um, do episodes yeah it's got to be the shining episode oh did. of course because james james rodriguez who wrote with that episode with todd um is a massive horror fan mm-hmm. 
and um, wrote wrote me basically playing the jack roll as the Lasseter slowly loses his mind. So great. And I'd said to him, you know, I, I, at the time, The Shining was the scariest movie in the world to me. Yeah. And I was like, I can't watch it. And he's like, you have to. You're going to miss all the jokes. So the only way I could watch it, I was flying back and forth to L.A. a lot. So I'm, I'm on a plane sitting in first class. You watch it on, a, like, on an eight-inch screen? <laughs> no, I watched it on my laptop. Yeah, so the eight-inch screen. <laughs> on a bright, on a very, in a, in a plane, in an incredibly bright, sunny morning. Is the only way I can handle watching The Shining. You tipped a flight attendant to hold your hand. <laughs> yeah. Or just, just just muscle my my cries. You colossal wuss. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I know. Um, I've shown it to my daughters thinking, oh, this might be too scary. And they freaking love it. Of course. Of course. And it's, I, it's not scary at all of them. We showed it to uh, my kids uh, during the pandemic and uh, holds up. Holds up really nicely. Um so you keep getting these gigs in other countries. You keep getting these amazing gigs in Vancouver, in New Zealand, and that eventually takes us to Ireland for Gallivant. Um, first off, how right, so, psyched were you to to book a musical? You know, um, I had when it came to Gallivant, I actually hadn't done a musical since high school. Oh my god! So um, the big it took me five months to get approved for that job. Finally, five months. Took five months of auditioning to get that job because um, the president of the network, who's British, wanted a big, big British oh. movie star for them because because King Richard was such a big role. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah, you're the only so, American in an almost exclusively British cast, right? That that is correct. Yes. Yeah. Mallory's Australian. Um, everybody else was was either British or yes. Yeah. So yeah, I was the only, I was the token Yankee. Wow. Which was um, super proud that a lot of times the, the crew said they didn't realize I was American. Which oh, that's was, a good um, feeling. That's a very good feeling. Because you know, I came up with the accent myself. And... Nice, nice. Um, yeah, your your dialect is really good. Who did you, did you have a coach? Did you uh, work on it at home? How'd you, how'd you get that? It's a very no, like just, upper just, class, uh, what they call received pronunciation dialect over there. That's really it solid. Was, I, just, I just cobbled him together. Yeah. It was a combination of, um, of, Jeremy Irons and um, Peter Ustinov as Prince John from the animated um, from the animated Robin, Robin Hood. Hood sure, movie. sure, with the with the pantless fox. Yes, and then um, we had an actor on there named Stanley Townsend, who's an amazing British actor who was working in the National. I would occasionally ask him for um, advice on pieces here and there. Right, right. So he would give me, he would give me like just advice on one particular word. Right, and then my friend Tom, who was a very dear dear friend who lived in the UK, his mother was a very sort of very upper class British woman. So it's, I just kind of based it also on Tom's mom. <laughs> it sounds great. It really, really sounds great. And there's a terrific moment at the end of season one where you're plotting to kill your brother, and you get to do get to have to do three things at once. You've got to do the accent, you got to play drunk and you got to lip sync. Um, do you know the no moment I'm talking about? You're, you're, you're running through the hallways. You're preparing to kill your brother, but you keep getting, you keep stopping for drinks oh, along for, the way. Yeah. The, um, the episode with Rucker Hauer. Yeah, um, exactly. Rucker Hauer. Plays song your brother. Was, uh, the song was secret, secret mission was the song. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's Alan Menken, right? Wrote the yeah, so, uh, songs for that one. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so not only am I having to learn how to sing and do a musical, I'm 
singing Mencken songs. What was I? Well, let's back up real quick. What was the last musical you did in high school before Gallivant? I have to know. Uh, Guys and Dolls. Wait, who'd you play? Played Sky. Fuck yes, you did. Oh my god. Oh my god. We listen. I try to keep this relatively family friendly, but I cannot imagine how late Timothy Amundsen got playing Sky Masterson. Um, I mean, that is just sex on a stick. I can't even. That's wow. Good for you. Um, so. You uh, you take a thirty year break from uh, from musical theater, return to it triumphantly with an Alan Menken score in Ireland. Um, it, it well, we was... had done. Sorry, we had. There was an episode of Psych. There was a musical. That's right. That um that Steve Franks wrote, which really rekindled my love for music. I was like, oh my god, I forgot. I love singing. I love this. I love I love musical theater. I should do the, I should do more of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's a um, and my New Year's resolution that year really was I want to make music a bigger part of my life, <sighs> and then I get this job. So um, in between um, the five months that it took me to get finally cast in this job and having to sing, for, I I actually had to sing for Alan at one point. Oh my god! What, did you uh, did they give you songs to sing, or did you have to come in with like sixteen bars of something? Yeah, I just now I came in. I did um, "Stars" from Les Mis. Oh, that's a hard one. That's a, yeah, I mean, we don't know. That's a hard one. That's Javert's song uh, early on in the show that has that weird note at the end. That's hard, yeah. Yes, because that's the role I've always wanted to play on in musical theater. Yeah, of course. So I, I started, it took so long for me to get the job, I started, I was taking singing lessons. So I worked on that one enough and would go into the, go into the teacher and they'd all say the same thing. I'm like, I'd be a lovely instrument. You have no technique whatsoever. Oh, Wow. Cut to me being in Bristol recording in our first recording session, singing King Richard's big song from the pilot. Yeah, yeah. And not being able to hit the top note. Oh fuck. And I'm looking through I'm looking through the window in the recording studio and seeing all the producers and Alan sitting there and the, the whispering to each other, flop sweat begins, and I realize, holy shit, they're gonna realize I'm totally I'm gonna get fired. Alan Mackin comes in the studio booth with me and try proceeds to try and teach me how to sing so I can hit the note. Oh my God! So in four minutes, he's trying to give me singing technique, and and <laughs> I'm convinced I'm going to get fired, sweating profusely, and that was between um, and it's then between seasons one and two is when I really like I promised that I would ne- that would never I would never go through that again. That's when I really started taking some serious singing lessons. It does feel in season two like you're given a little more to sing. It's almost like oh he's been training, he can do his own stunts now. Yeah, it, it kind of was that they they were I think they did sort of recognize that and give me a little more to do and felt a little more successful. I mean, really, I, like I was really studying hard and really trying to get my voice into shape. And there was actually, there was some talk of trying to get me into New York and fill in for, um, like a stunt cast thing. There was talk about, um, going into to Chicago at one point, uh, as Billy Flynn. Yeah. Which, um, oh, wow. I think Mike Tyson with the time was playing Billy Flynn on one of the versions in, in, on Broadway. So it's a role that they'll just, they just have people come in and out. Jerry Springer has actually done the role on Broadway of yeah. Billy Flynn. Um, so it is a, uh, how to put this, a open-minded casting process over there yeah, regardless. Exactly. But I did, I actually think there were talks with him to do that. So I, I kind of was thinking that, which had always sort of, of course, secretly been my dream is to go and, of course. Tread the boards of the of the great white way. Of course, of course. Um, 
I want to talk about uh, the uh, mishap you had in Tampa a few years back. Um, uh, Coming up on five years, actually. Is it five years now? Yeah, because it would it would have been spring 2017, right? Exactly. It was April 29th. April, wow. 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 It's really coming up on five years. Um, uh, happy anniversary. <laughs> um, but Thank, um, no, it is because uh, I would say it's, it's a survival anniversary. It's the fact that I'm still alive. So it, it is it is kind of a day to celebrate. It was a massive stroke. It was a fucking massive stroke. And I we I, you probably don't remember this. We were supposed to have lunch and you were supposed to be back from Florida. And we, I was like, great, we'll have lunch on this day when you're back from Florida. Text me in the morning. And I didn't hear from you. And I thought like, oh, wow, we're just starting our bromance and this guy's ghosting me. <laughs> and then Sorry, your uh, a, a friend of your wife's called me and 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 gave me the the update. Um, was there a moment, I mean, there had to have been, I mean, you had to have thought for a moment, like, that's it, I'm not going to act again. Or was it even, or was it a question of like, shit, am I, am I going to do anything again? I mean, how, how touch and go was it at the beginning there? You know, when you're in that situation, you, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. Interesting. Like I did not realize how, um, disabled I would be. Okay. And on my left, like my left arm is still totally paralyzed and my, my voice still isn't where it used to be. And. I've got a blind spot on the left side. I mean, acting is entirely different now. Okay. But there was a moment, literally there was a moment in the ICU where I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I beat Hollywood. I became a success. I moved to LA as a kid, became a successful, built a career, became a successful actor. If I can be, if I can beat Hollywood, then I can beat a stroke. Oh, wow. So let's go. And, um, and then was blessed to, um, have people write for me. So Dan Fogelman created was one of the creators of Gallivant, uh, and people might not yeah. realize because they're such different shows. He's also one of the creators of This Is Us. Um, he is indeed, and those are two fairly distinct visions, but they both have uh, a lot of heart, and they both have Timothy Amundsen now. So he, he, but he incorporated you so organically into it. I mean, you've got. Chrissy Metz has to walk a bunch to lose weight. And you were at the time it, at, I remember when you booked that you were at the, like the, the peak of your physical therapy work. Like you were really like, yeah, just, they just were barely yeah. starting to walk. Yeah. They were really coming at you hard though. And you were, you were needed some assistance and you were working with the cane and there was a lot of wheelchair stuff, but you, it was this kind of amazing moment of this doesn't feel forced that you don't feel shoehorned into those episodes you feel like, oh, it, it makes sense for this show and this character to go on a walk with someone who else also needs to walk desperately for health reasons. And that's, again, the genius of Dan Fogelman and, and the kindness. I was at a, um, Karen David, who was my co-star on Gallivant, mm-hmm. lives nearby, and I was at dinner at her house where literally they had to, they had to carry my wheelchair over the threshold so I could get into the living room mm. or the dining room. That goes that messed up. Like not walking at all. And um, Chris Koch, our producing director from Gallivant, was there, who's also a director on and producer on This Is Us. And we were talking. He said, yeah, you know, maybe we could have me on the show. And I literally thought, that's never going to happen. Well, I said, well, maybe I could be a guy in the office in a wheelchair. Ironically, I can really, I mean, I'm in a wheelchair. Some I use a wheelchair sometimes. But because my left arm is paralyzed, I can't really move around in it that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I thought I could be a guy in the office. And then Dan starts texting me. As um, actually, 
Kat and John were two other producers from Galavan. They were keeping Dan apprised of my progress as I was recovering. And those guys all came to my, Chris and Kat and John came to my 50th birthday party, which you should have been at. I was there. How dare you? It was at the oh, Formosa. Fuck, fuck you. Like, I was recovering from a stroke. <laughs> all right. You know what? You could use that. I'll let you use that card this time, but I was absolutely there. Okay. Um, well, yeah. No, I was sitting at a table with you, Joel McHale and Seth Green. How dare you? Um, uh, which, right. by the way, you, good luck making an impression when Joel McHale's at your table. But, you know, I, I did what I could. <laughs> I was also drinking uh, old fashions that night. As you should have. <laughs> but based on that speech I gave, my, my speech to Allison, yeah. I think one of them, Cat uh, or John recorded it and sent it to um, to Dan and, and said, um, and then Chris came up later and it's like, yeah, you're ready to go. Like, you're ready to work. That's amazing. It's like a couple of that speech together. Wow. So Dan texts me and he's like, hey, I'm thinking of writing a guy deep in recovery from a stroke. Do so you know anyone? Like, yeah, put me in <laughs> like, where are you going to get one? <laughs> um, uh, there's plenty of Hollywood stories that, by the way, go like that. Um, where, hey, do you know anyone who's going to fit this role? Um, the, there's a, a lovely, there's a tender moment in the show. Well, there's a, a tender moment in This Is Us. It's seven seasons of tender moments. There was a particular tender moment in the show. Um, yeah, season four in there where you're taking a break from walking. You're having muscle spasms, which I know is something you occasionally have to deal with in, in real life. And Chrissy Metz comes into your house to hang out with you for a little bit. And you, you start the character very prickly. And then they gave you this very nice, like, thawing over over your episodes where you kind of you genuinely yeah, I was warm up because the character was named Gr- gregory so i was joking that his name who's grumpy gregory because he starts out so grumpy yeah um and you and you you know with with perfectly good reason to to be grumpy but there's a, a moment that that struck me um i was watching it this week where you talk to her and and she goes you don't seem like you're in a good mood and, and you say, well, since the stroke, I've had trouble expressing empathy and gratitude and things like that. Is that a real struggle you've had? That absolutely is. And, um, especially with a riper injury, it's a, it's a weird thing. Empathy becomes something that gets difficult to express. Okay. Not necessarily feel, but maybe feel, but also, but mostly to express. And because my face isn't as expressive as it used to be, it's hard to convey that. And I, I wrote, I told Dan that and he kindly enough, like, he wrote, he put it in, which was a really a sweet gift that he gave me on that one. Well, it's, it's, it's what that show does very well, which it doesn't go for like the easy platitude about, um, uh, obesity or adoption or, or, or addiction uh, for a network drama. I think one of the reasons it's so popular is that it really pauses for a moment. It goes, no, seriously, what is this like? What, what is a stroke like? What is, you know, living with and trying to recover from a, a serious obesity issue. And it, it has this, this insight and it's because they listen to the actors clearly. Yeah. And they were open enough to, to embrace that and show the warts and all, which I was really like, if I'm, if I'm going to be working, which has been sporadic and it's not, I can't pretend I didn't have the, I don't have these physical uh, dif- disabilities now. Okay. So that was always my fear of like, I can't pretend my, my left arm works when it just doesn't. So can we, can we use that and write it in somehow? All right. All right. What, um, how did they, 
when when you returned for re- remind our audience how how did they accommodate for Lassiter's uh, disability in the Psych movies? Uh, Lassiter Lassiter got sh- get shot in the uh, how many times? Movie and let, pardon me. How many times does he get shot? How many times did he get? Sh- I can't. Uh, we'll say twelve. I don't know. He, he, he just gets sh- <laughs> no. He gets shot once, but he has a stroke on the operating table. So in the in the in those films, talk about uh, again love and a, a supporting environment. Those guys, Steve and James, again, wrote, wrote my recovery into the, the story. So Lasker has a stroke on the operating table. That second movie is based on his recovery. It takes place in a recovery hospital, mm-hmm. which I was in a lot of. Yeah. And then the third movie, again, is him. Slowly you see him sort of where, like, both those movies were really where I was in real life at the time. Yeah. And the, uh, I mean, the first movie, I'm just... It's a cameo. I can barely stand and speak. Yeah. We sh- we shot him in my back guest house because I couldn't I couldn't travel. Oh my god. That's how accommodating they were. Wow. And as my voice has gotten str- stronger over the um the years over these five years now. Yeah. They wrote it in. And then- um, I I know that the stroke affected uh your breathing a little bit. Um, but it's clearly gotten better over the past five years. I mean, the times I've visited you, you you seem to be, you, your speech gets a little less halting every time I talk to you over the past five years. Oh, that's good to hear. It, yeah, it does. It does feel like my lungs, my lungs have gotten stronger and stronger, and my voice is, is kind of dropped back down into lower register, where, similar to where it used to be. Do you think you'll you'll sing again? Um, funny you should ask that. I um. We've been watching American Idol. It's one of our favorite um, distracting shows. Yeah. And no show makes me cry like American Idol cry. It makes me cry. Yeah. Because I miss it so much. But um, I literally, I just text my old my old vocal coach and said, I really want to start doing this again. I am going to cry. So I'm going to, after May, we're going to try and, because um, the pandemic, she's not, and her studio is sort of right around the corner. So we're trying to, going to try and get back in and see if I can start um, seeing it. Because there was, one of the things I used to do in, in my clinic was with vocal training was um, I wanted to be able to sing happy birthday to, to Lily because Lily's 20th birthday was coming up. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to be able to sing happy birthday. And I, I still couldn't quite, I couldn't even muster that up. So, um, sorry, John. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm fine. But, and I still, to this day, I can't really um pull it out. I'm just, I'm experimenting with ranges. trying If I'm trying to, but I do feel like my voice has dropped back into a, a lower range. It's a little bit more of a proper, like my proper, more theater voice. Yeah. Which is such shitty, like, having done all that Shakespeare and having, like, do you know Richard, Richard Spate's great actor? You should have Richard on. Richard who? Richard and I went to theater school. Richard Spate. Oh, yeah, sure. I know Richard, yeah. So Richard used to call me Il Voce in college. Oh, in college. wow. Wow. Italian for so the voice. So having that guy who had that voice. Who, yeah, yeah. Who like could hit the back row without any effort and um, be able to handle quick Shakespeare, trippingly off the tongue, to quote, to quote the, the player, um, uh, and not feeling much not a lot of times. You introduced me to a British singer songwriter named Frank Turner, both literally and figuratively. You 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 told me to check him out. I did, and now I've seen him a couple times, a couple times with you, a couple times without you. 
Uh, and you and I got, we, we'd met on Psych, but we got to know each other a little bit better doing the Thrilling Adventure Hour, which was a very, very popular live show and podcast here in Los Angeles. And we would cross paths there occasionally. And on one particular episode, you did a Frank Turner song um, uh, as a sort of bonus for the audience there. Can, can you tell me a little bit about that? It was, it was the holiday fun around, I think. Oh, wow. Because they want to call it the Christmas show. They call it the, hun- holi- the holiday fun around. So I sang, uh, I did a cover of, of Balthazar and Rosario, which was one of my favorite Frank songs. It's about, it's about a theater owner. Yeah. And sort of in the age of the um, music halls dying in the UK. And it's one that always gets me. And so I um, have a history of, of trying to do Frank covers. And his voice is so much higher than mine, I can, I can never quite do them justice. But, you know, I think when you take that version down a register, there's a sadder quality to it. Um, and I love Frank's original, but there's something very special about yours because it is a little bit lower than Frank's that gives it a very literal gravitas, I think is uh, really nice. I am over the moon that you're going to go back into vocal lessons, and I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you, my friend. I will let you know. You can come over for coffee and we'll, we'll uh, get a turn. I'm wearing a Frank T-shirt. Frank I Turner see you t-shirt. are wearing a Frank Turner T-shirt. Timothy Amundsen, thank you so much for doing this. Jonathan, my dear friend, you really true are a dear friend. You, you were one of the guys I've said to you in the past before. Once I got really sick and could not travel to go meet friends for coffee, you're one of the guys who really showed up in my life. Oh, please. I love coffee. I love you. I love no, coffee. It's, it's true, easy. John. Oh, pshaw. Um... We'll do it again soon. I love it, John. This, uh, I am. Uh, I'm going to text you as soon as we're all, we're done here and see if I can when I can get you on the books. Fantastic. My name is Balthazar Impresario. You find me at the bottom of the page. I have artist hands, but I'm a working man. My craft has been forgotten by the age So tonight will be my last night on this stage This is my family's trade My father built this place The turning of the 20th century I have been working here for some 50 Young these days are glued to TV screens. The old girl is dying on her feet. Once more to the falls, one more curtain call. Give the crowd everything they're asking for and more. Always make them laugh, try to make them cry. And that is an episode wrap on Timothy Amundsen as we go out to the strains of him singing Balthazar Impresario by Frank Turner. You can find Timothy at Amundsen on both Twitter and Instagram, and he shows up repeatedly on this, the final season of This Is Us. Forever! Dog! 
Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Pew, pew, pew.